just uh, it's what my soul needed today. And uh, I don't know, I, like, I, I look out the window too and you get to see the seasons and I even just saw this whole flock of geese perfectly in order fly by and I just thought, you know, our God is such an awesome creator. He's a God of order. Everything, he's so worthy of our praise, isn't he? Amen. Well, uh, one of the exciting things, too, for me is just uh, being a part of this church where um, I think we're finally to the point where we realize that you guys, you, you are the pastor. You are the priests. You are the ones on the front lines uh, making a difference. And we just kind of come to our locker room on on Sunday mornings, and hopefully the coach uh, has some words from God to just fire you guys up to keep going out there. It's so awesome to be a part of that. And um, Kyle and Megan Winters, I don't know if you know these guys. You should, because uh, they are two of ours uh, that we support. They have been sent to maybe one of the most filthiest cities and places in the world, Columbus, Ohio. You know? Well, that's where we send some of our best, right? Really, God's doing amazing work in them, and Kyle's here today. Kyle, I want to ask you to come up and just share just a little bit about what God is doing. Um, His wife, Megan, couldn't be here, but I just want you to know, like, I go, Megan and I go all the way back to my days in Chicago when I used to be a um, young adult pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel. And what you guys need to know about Megan is that God literally took her life out of the pit, a deep pit, and just placed it on a rock. And she has such a new song in her heart. I don't know of anyone that has a greater passion to tell people about Jesus than this guy's wife. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all right. But hey, tell us just a little bit about, just to give us a little report here. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, my better half, as Rod talked her up, I feel like this is kind of a letdown having me share with you guys. <laughs> uh, but I'm one of the beneficiaries of God getting a hold of her life. But um, it's good to be back up in the state up north, as they call it down there in Ohio. <laughs> they won't even say the word Michigan. Uh, it's great to be with you guys, so thanks for the opportunity. God's been doing an amazing stuff down there, Columbus, Ohio. Just a little brief background my wife and I were on staff with the campus church at University of Michigan four years ago. We decided we wanted to plant uh, a church. As a church, we decided to go somewhere. We thought, who needs Jesus more than students at The Ohio State University? <laughs> so we decided to send a team down there, campus of 50,000 students, uh, and very little going on from a, from a spiritual standpoint. There was a rough estimate of 4 to 5% were involved in a, in a Christian group on campus. Very little going on in terms of having a church right on campus. So brought a couple pictures. This is a, a picture of our, our family. There's Megan and our, our two babies. She's holding the fort down back in Columbus with these two little ones. Um, and another picture of campus. This is an idea of just how it's teeming with students, uh, most of whom have not had a clear presentation of the gospel, who do not know Jesus, and are, are basically running hard in the op- opposite direction uh, from God. And uh, that's why we wanted to be on campus. We believe it's one of the most strategic mission fields in the world. Uh, There's so many young people who are making huge decisions, kind of figuring out who they are, so much opportunity for them uh, to really uh, go the wrong direction and really damage their lives, but so much potential for them if they they get a, a, catch a glimpse of what God could do in their lives to have an impact on this world. We really believe the mission field is coming to places like Columbus 
from all over the world to get an education, and we want to make disciples of these students while they're there and then send them back out uh, to reach this world. Uh, so we have a service on campus. Uh, here's a picture of it. Um, God's just blown it away. We started with a handful of wolverines, a handful of buckeyes. Somehow the love of Christ united us. Uh, and we started off um, four falls ago. This is our fourth fall. And now we, we've seen God bring. We had uh, 470 at our kickoff service, uh, which is, was pretty amazing uh, since we just started several years ago. And um, it's not about the numbers, you know, sitting in church, as you guys know. Uh, we really believe that it's about individual lives being transformed. Uh, and one of those, I just want to share quick, quickly his story, is a guy named Brandon. Um, he basically grew up in the church, but then came to college and just running opposite direction, involved in the party scene, uh, just doing a lot of stuff that he now regrets. And basically had a, a moment where he got a DUI, uh, really got shaken up by it, um, turned his life around and, and put his faith in Christ. He just came to church like, I need to go to church. Had a friend invite him, and he put his faith in Christ and then just had a um, total life transformation. And now he's actually on staff with our church. He graduated and wanted to go back and do full-time ministry now. And this is his fiance. They're getting married in a couple weeks. Um, I'm standing up for him in his wedding, and my wife and I have been able to do pre-marriage counseling with these guys. And it's just an awesome picture of what God can do in an individual life. There's this, this guy who's broken, has serious issues, not interested in God, and then God turned his life around, and now he wants to invest his life in ministering to college students on Ohio State. So we, uh, we really appreciate you guys. I know you may feel disconnected from Columbus, but we love you guys, appreciate uh, you guys and your prayers and support. Um, I'm going to leave this little book with someone, I think on the missions team. It's a, just a book of individual stories like Brandon's that we did at the end of our last school year, kind of to celebrate three years being on campus there. So if you can track it down and get a hold of it, it's, it's pretty moving to read some of these stories. And uh, just want to let you guys know that you're a part of these stories, and we appreciate it. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Well, why don't you get right down here? We're going we're gonna, to uh, surround you with prayer right now, if you don't mind. Yeah, you guys, let's stand. Let's just kind of gather around Kyle. Let's praise God for the book, this book right here of all the stories. As God leads some of you, we actually go right here in the middle and uh, put your hands on them and as the Lord leads.
sweaty out and just eating I just like try to stay continually writing with that book and if not over once it's completed you write it and do do thousands of pages of you know mm-hmm. just trying to try something new. God, we just thank you so much that we get to partner with Kyle and Megan, and they really do represent, Lord, um, on, on universities today where you're moving, and there are so many, God, thousands upon thousands of this generation who don't know you, and so we pray for them, and we pray for all of our campuses. Um, we just pray, God, that you would reach this generation for Christ, and I can't even pray that, Lord, without also praising you for the Kyle and the Megans and thinking about Grand Valley and the campuses in this community, what you're doing, God. We just thank you, and we just continue to ask for more. Uh, We bless your name. And, Lord, I also just pray for Gary Stowey right now. Um, Today is Kristen's birthday, and just... Losing his 19-year-old daughter uh, two years ago, Lord, I just pray that uh, you would be with him in a special way today and their family. And God, I just pray that you would just privilege us to be your hands and your feet, your face and your heart, your mouth to our neighbors and to the nations for the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks, man. All right. Um, where are we going next here? Genesis 37. The gospel according to who? Joseph. The gospel according to Joseph. Let's uh, step into this kind of new section, but also still part of Genesis. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Jacob lived in the land where his father has, had stayed, the land of Canaan. Give me some other names for the land of Canaan. Promised land. What else? Israel. What else? Pa- Jerusalem's located there, yep. Palestine, all the same, okay, just so you guys know. Uh, We sometimes call it the Holy Land today. This is the account, the Toledot, of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. How many brothers are there total? Twelve, including Joseph. The sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, that's his name. What's his other name? I'm sorry I'm doing this, but I just want us to know this stuff, okay? Now, Israel, or otherwise called Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. So Jacob made for him an ornate robe. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain. 
in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood tall while your sheaves gathered around mine. For some reason, they all bowed to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brother, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father pondered these things in his heart. Now the brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, now I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word to me. When he sent him off from the valley of Hebron, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering about in the fields and asked him, What are you seeking? He replied, I'm seeking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing? They had moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and did find them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. Wow, that's right out of the prodigal son, too. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits, these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured them. Then we'll see what happens to his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in this pit here in the wilderness and don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this because he wanted to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they were stripping him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him, they threw him into the pit. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. (laughs) wonder what kind of conscience they had. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming to Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take, down, take these things down to Egypt. Judah said to his brother, brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. And he went back to his brothers and he said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? So interesting. And then they got Joseph's robes. They slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. This is God's word today. You can be seated. Jacob now is finally settled in the land with his family, in the land of his fathers. 
Now, starting with verse 2, because we have a very important word here, where it says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. The account of, we need to know this word, because the whole book of Genesis hangs on this word. It's the Hebrew word, toledot. In fact, 22 times in Genesis... This word is used, and it's oftentimes translated either generations of, or the account of, or the story of, or the family line of. Now, here's the question. Why is this an important word? Well, I don't have time to explain all of this other than to take you back to Genesis 3, verse 15. In the ruin of God's good creation, God promises to defeat evil once and for all, and to put everything, the whole world, to rights. And the way he's going to do this, he's not going to just sit up in heaven and just snap his finger and boom! All of a sudden, it's all good again. He's going to work his salvation, his redemption, through story. Through a specific story. He's going to work it through a family. Through a specific family. He's going to work it through a legacy. And a lineage. Through a specific line. Through a specific seed. Through Toledot. So in the Toledot of Adam. We ask. Or we should ask. Through whom is God's story. God's salvation, God's redemption, who's it going to run through? Is it going to be Cain or Abel? And of course, God says it's going to run through Abel. Then you keep following this line, and then you come to Terah, and we ask, okay, now which son is it going to go through? And God says it's going to go through Abraham. Then you come to Abraham, and you ask, all right, now who's the Toledot? The story, the seed going to go through. Is it going to be Ishmael or is it going to be Isaac? God says it's going to be Isaac. Of course, Muslims today insist that it's, no, it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael. Then you come to Isaac and you ask, who is it? Well, Jacob thinks it's Esau, but God says, no, it's not Esau. It's Jacob. So now we come to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We need to ask ourselves, which one is it going to be? I'm not going to answer that question today. But based on this story and everything that's going to follow in Genesis, Jacob has clearly made his choice. Who is it? It's Joseph. In fact, in verse 3 it says, Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Makes him a special coat. In fact, a lot has been made of this coat. I don't know what you think of this coat or what you do with this coat, but I hate to ruin your Broadway idea of this coat of many colors. Because, yes, it may have been colorful, but more importantly, this coat was a coat that simply, as the Hebrew describes it, was a coat that went down to one's wrists and all the way down to one's ankles. It was the kind of coat that only rulers wore. See, laborers in that day would wear something sleeveless because they're out working, they're out laboring, 
But rulers, those in charge, wore this kind of coat. Now, by the way, do you know where Joseph is in this birth order? Of the 12, what is he? 11. Anyone know who Jacob's actual firstborn is? Reuben. Anyone know why Jacob rejects Reuben? Yeah, you don't really want to say right now, for those of you who know, but in Genesis 35, Reuben sleeps with one of Jacob's concubines, and I don't even want to get into all of that, okay? But Jacob outright rejects Reuben to the day of his death, and you can see this in Genesis 49, how Jacob rejects him. Now, instead of the birthright, though, going to the next oldest, which would be Simeon, Jacob gives it to Joseph. Why? Jacob is the firstborn of Rachel. As we learned, Rachel is the love of his life. And see, now here we have to wonder, is Jacob being Jacob again? Is Jacob trying to get ahead of God's plan? Is he trying to engineer this thing the way he wants it to go? At a minimum, I think we can say, here is Jacob's great flaw. Because Rachel... The love of his life was also the emotional center of his life. She was everything to Jacob. Now, to some of you, this might sound really romantic. Ah, Jacob just loves her. Listen to me. This isn't love. This is obsession. This is narcissistic whatever. And his obsession with Rachel is also at the expense of Leah. And this poisoned the whole family. Because now Jacob is doing the same thing with Rachel's children. He obsesses over them. He makes them the emotional center of his life at the expense of his ten other sons. Now I want you to try right now to just put yourself in Joseph's brother's shoes for a moment. Imagine every day watching your dad reject your mom while favoring and delighting in another woman. Imagine every single day experiencing your dad pouring out his love, his affection, and his delight in one of your brothers while he just kind of ignores you. I mean, you talk about deep pain, intense wounding that's going on. And see, this deep-rooted sin in Jacob damages his whole family. And I think if you remember last week, or last time, when we looked at the parable of the prodigal, we learned that we have been made for relationship. Namely, relationship with the Father. To know, to experience our Heavenly Father, His, His arms, His affection... We've been made to crave his, his love and his delight. In fact, all of us right now, whether we know this or not, we all have a deep need for the coat. You do. To wear the coat of your father's love, your father's affection, to have your, your heavenly father look at you and to know this in your heart that he's saying to me, my son or my daughter. 
in whom I'm well pleased, in whom I delight. And see, our earthly fathers become the tangible expression of the love that our hearts were made for. And see, when a son or a daughter doesn't get this, when they don't grow up knowing that my dad loves me, that my dad delights in me, it wounds and scars a person for life. It does. I mean, I was a youth pastor for nine years. And trust me, I had a front row seat to seeing the effects, whether it was a distant dad or an unengaged dad or an unloving dad or an abusive dad, the damage is great. What's crazy about this when I read this is, Jacob, of all people, should know better, shouldn't he? I mean, this is Jacob's wound. He's the victim of a dad who greatly favored his brother over him. I mean, he, he had this firsthand experience of, of always playing second fiddle to his brother Esau and watching dad just dote on him and delight in him. So here's the question I ask. Why is Jacob, of all people, succumbing to this? I'll tell you why. Respect sin. Respect it. Know the power of sin. Because sin runs deep. And if we don't know this, that it doesn't just run deep out there, but that it runs deep in here. We'll be just like Jacob. Our poison will poison others. See, unless you and I have the courage and the capacity to try to find the the sin underneath the sin and apply God's presence and God's grace to it, sin will damage, it will damage you, it will damage especially those who are closest to you. And this applies for people who are like Jacob, who have met with God, who have seen God face to face, whose lives are being transformed by him. Because listen to me, Jacob is still a sinner. Sin still manifests itself in his wounds, in his emptiness, because it always does. Now, I think for all of us, Jacob's woundedness is quite easy to see. I mean, he never got from his dad what his heart so needed, the love, the affection. It left this gaping hole, this gaping wound in his heart. Then Rachel comes along. (laughs) Ah, Rachel. If I could just have Rachel, Rachel will will, will heal that wound. It will satisfy the ache. And, And so all of a sudden, Jacob makes Rachel, the emotional center of his life. But then when Rachel dies, then it becomes Rachel's children. It becomes Joseph. It becomes Benjamin. Even when Jacob loses Joseph, we're going to come to find that he's not going to let go of Benjamin, even though he has another son who's rotting away in a prison. Because this, I have to have this. And see, the sin, as we've learned beneath all sin, is 
idolatry in some form or another. It's believing that someone or something other than God can assuage the ache, heal the wound, feel the, fill the emptiness, and somehow make me think I'm okay. And see, this is how sin is passed from one generation to the next generation. And then when we look at Jacob's family, this family through whom God is going to bless and bless all the families of the earth. Think about that. This family is sick. Because sin is sick. I mean, look at it. Even Joseph is... I can't believe how many commentators tried to make this guy, Joseph, this righteous, perfect little kid. I read this and I see a 17-year-old egotistical little punk. I do. I mean, he's all dressed up in daddy's mink coat. Hey, guys, let me tell you guys. And these brothers of his are in their 20s, their 30s. And in that land, pecking order, age meant everything. Younger always bowed to the older. Hey, guys, let me tell you a little dream I had last night. Um, you know, we were out in the fields, and you had your bundles of grain, and I had my bundle of grain. And, man, the strangest thing happened. But for some reason, all your bundles of grain found my bundle of grain and just bowed. You know, and I do, I, I do cause I probably because I hear this in my home all the time, I, I just hear, shut up, little punk. <laughs> I mean, come on, we don't want to hear your dreams. What do you mean? You don't want to hear my other dream about how the sun and the, the moon and all the stars bowed to the one star? I think this is sick. Because sin is always sick. And see, in verse 4, it says about the brothers, they hated Joseph. Then in verse 5, it says they hated him all the more. By the time you get to verse 8, it said they hated him still more. Now, I'm not trying to justify their anger, their hatred. But something in me understands it. But here's the question I want to ask. How do we break the cycle of generational sin. Do you have the courage to look underneath your behavior, whether it's good or bad, and find out what's underneath it? To see that preaching sermons and being a pastor at a church that there can sometimes be some of the most heinous, disgusting sin under all that. You know, David, when you read the story closely, you realize that David also grew up with a massive father wound. I mean, he's rejected by his brothers. He's forgotten by his dad when the president of the United States comes to the house and you know, he's going to elect the next president of the United States. His dad doesn't even think about him. He's just pushed way out there, just the guy who takes care of the sheep. I think that that's probably why in Psalm 27, which is one of my favorite psalms, and you get down to verse 20, 
verse 10 of Psalm 27, and David says, Though my father and my mother forsake me. See, David never got the coat. But it didn't stop there because David says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. He will take me in. And see, you may have never gotten the coat from your father, the coat of your dad's love, the coat of your dad's affection, but you have a father in heaven who so much wants to take you in, who wants to place his best coat on you, wrap his arms around you and say, you are mine. My soul delights in you. You know this today. I remember being on a mission trip. Wow, this probably was 15 years ago. Down in Canton, Mississippi. We were staying in this poor African-American community in, in, in one of their Baptist churches there. And after we go out and just serve all day, we'd come back at night and we'd be community and we'd eat and we'd share and we'd pray together. And remember this one girl in, our, in my ministry, her name was Carol. She was going into her senior year. And she was so broken up inside because she had a dad who completely forsook her. She had nothing with her dad. And I remember just talking to her and I said, Carol, why don't you go find a quiet place in this church and go read Psalm 27. And I just kind of kept my eye on her and I watched and I could tell she was just drinking it in, drinking it in. And then all of a sudden she just And she wept and she cried. And she told me later, it was verse 10, that just smoked her for the first time in her life. She realized she had a heavenly father who took her in. And see, this is why we don't need self-help strategies. We don't need three steps to this or that. We don't need principles. What we need is we, we need a power We need a power that's going to actually free us from our root sin. And that power is this, that you and I have a Father in heaven who loves us, who runs to us, who receives us, who who throws his arms around us, who places his coat on us. He says, you're my son, my daughter. I love you. You know this, Dad? You wear his coat. Well, you say, well, what about Joseph? I mean, look at him. He got the coat. What is it that he needs to be delivered of? Pride. In fact, I don't know if you, if, if you read the, the dreams pretty closely, but when you read them closely, you know that he involves both the heavens in one dream and the earth in the other dream, almost like he's implying that both the heavens and the earth are going to bow to me. In fact, this whole thing has gotten so out of hand that even his dad has to say to Joseph in verse 10, man, this is way over the top. This has to stop. And I like what Tim Keller has to say about Joseph. He says, Joseph at this point in his life is on the path to becoming a sociopath. He's becoming an evil person. And it's all because of pride. Now, how do you deliver a person from pride? 
Do you tell them? Do you explain pride to them? Do you preach sermons on pride? I wish that worked, but it doesn't. I'll tell you what we need. We need pits and prisons. We need being stripped of the very things that cause the pride because only through this can pride be destroyed, can our hearts be open to knowing God, and can our wills actually have the capacity to submit to him. So we come to verse 13. Dad says to Joseph, go check on your brothers. Now notice, where are they, where are they pasturing their flocks? Shechem. Three times it says go to Shechem, or they're in Shechem. Why is the Bible drawing attention to Shechem? Shechem is not where they're supposed to be. Shechem in Genesis, I think, 35 is what they had to leave so they could return, repent to God. So Joseph walks 60 miles to Shechem. I love this. A stranger comes to him and asks him, literally in the Hebrew, this is how it reads, Who are you seeking? And I love Joseph's response. Joseph says, I am seeking my brothers. He tells them, well, they've gone off to Dothan. So now Joseph goes another 15 miles seeking his brothers in Dothan. They see him off in the distance. I mean, this is taken right out of the parable of the prodigal. And unlike Esau, unlike the father, these brothers, when they see him, the one who wronged them, they plot to kill him. In fact, look at verses 19 and 20. It says, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits. And let's say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what what will become of his dreams. I'm going to tell you something. You cannot sweep sin under the rug. The damage that has been done to them, they are now passing that along and they're doing it to their very own brother. Now, one person I just, I want to go down a rabbit trail. I just, I want you to see this guy. I want you to see Reuben. Because Reuben, as we already heard, is the one who lost the status of the firstborn son. However, he is still acting like the firstborn son. Because remember, to to be the firstborn, to have the status of the firstborn son, it was about more than just having the birthright, the, 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 the rights and the privileges, but to be the firstborn son was to take responsibility of the family as if you were the father of that family, and you were to treat that family just like your father would treat that family, even if it cost you your life. And this is why verses 21 and 22, when Reuben heard of this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Let's throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness. Don't you dare lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could rescue him. And later, he could take him back to his father. See, Reuben's trying to save Joseph. 
Then when you get to verse 29, he finds out that Joseph is gone. What does he do? See, we are a world of words. This world is a world of pictures. He rips his clothes. Rips them. Because this is what dads did. When they lost something as precious as their own son. That's why three verses later, Jacob is going to be doing the same thing. He's going to just, in his grief, in his pain, he's going to rip. In fact, it's why Jewish scholars, when they read the New Testament, and they see the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom, their minds automatically say, ah, this is God. He's tearing his robes right now over the loss of his son. Joseph now begins his long journey down, down, down. He's stripped of his coat. In fact, this word in the Hebrew has a a violent connotation to it. They violently just ripped it off him. Naked then, he's thrown into this pit. In fact, when this story is going to be retold again a couple chapters later in Genesis 42, they also include this detail. They describe the fact that Jacob this whole time was crying out. He was screaming, brothers, please, please don't do this to me. You know what's just amazing? (laughs) These brothers don't have a clue what they've just done. See, they think they're destroying the dream and the dreamer. (laughs) When in fact, they are only fulfilling the dreams. Do you see that? You will. But for Joseph, in this pit, all alone, rejected, stripped of his dad, Stripped of his firstborn status. About to become a slave. It's here that Jake Joseph is being transformed. See, suffering will either make you bitter or better. It will either break you or make you. It will either ruin you or make you glorious. Because what suffering does, what the pit does, what being stripped of all our stuff does, when we lose things, we get to see who we really are. We get to see what we really believe. We get to find what's the real center of our life. See, when, when, when Job lost it all, when he was stripped of everything, we see what's at the center of his life. He still says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, and Job worshipped. When David loses it all, he does. He loses almost everything of earthly importance to him. He pens the world's words of Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Be joyful. Look at what Paul says. I didn't mark this. And you think I'm going to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, which I could be, but I'm not. I'm going to Acts. And I don't know, maybe uh, one of the guys, oh no, we haven't gotten to this yet. Um, just bear with me. Acts 20, 23, and 24. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and pits and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me except that I finish the race, that I complete the task that the Lord has given me, the task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's at the center of his heart. That's at the center of his soul. That's at the center of his his life. That's what the pit and suffering reveals. What is it that you're living for right now? What? This is God's pattern. This is God's way. It's completely backwards of our world. The way up is down. The way to greatness is by becoming small. You win by losing. You get life, resurrection life, through death. And salvation comes through suffering. That's God. That's his way. See, Jesus said it, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground, it remains only a single seed. Joseph's life right now is going into the ground. But see, here's the promise of the pit. That unless you and I are thrown into it, unless we go into the ground, we will bear no fruit. But if we're thrown into the pit... If we go into the ground, and if we die to self and pride, we'll bear much fruit. Hebrews 2 verse 10. Jesus was made perfect. Do you realize Jesus had to be made perfect? He was made perfect through suffering. For all you health and wealthers. <laughs> Acts 14, verse 22. Maybe, maybe the guys hit on this. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. This is what Paul says to encourage you guys. We must go through many afflictions to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, to get to promised land, we have to go through Egypt and desert. The best things all come out of the pit. I don't know if you guys know this, but I was coaching football this year, fifth and sixth graders. I, I, I absolutely love it. We had a good football team this year. We were, we were 4-0. And the next week, we played the best team who was 4-0. 
I wanted to win. Oh, I wanted to win. Um, my kids wanted to win. We prepared our, ourselves to win. We lost in the last two minutes. And I remember just gathering these kids around me after every game, and usually it's just high fives and all that, and they all have one knee, and I have one knee before them, and half of them are just crying their eyes out. And I just said, guys, guys, listen. The best things in life do not come out of winning. They come out of losing. They do. And I never wanted to pray after a game. One of the elders was challenging me to do that. I just didn't want them to associate winning with God. But this day, I just said, guys, I'll tell you where I go when I lose. And we prayed. And a coach that I'm coaching with, um, who doesn't know the Lord, afterward came up to me and said, Brad, that was the only thing, the only place we could have gone, and it's the highlight of my season. That comes out of losing. That's the stuff that comes out of the pit. See, this is the only way we can ever be delivered of our pride. Psalm 131 is is just one of my favorite psalms. You can listen to it or you can turn to it. David says this, and he, he says this, after having living much of his life in the pit, in the desert, losing things, he can say, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child at its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. I mean, here David is saying, Lord, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not go after things that are too great and difficult for me. And because David is, is this, he can describe the condition of his soul. Shalom. I'm like a little satisfied child sitting on its mother's lap. And see, Joseph, before this pit, he could never pray Psalm 131. Instead, he would say something like, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I live my life chasing after things way too difficult, way too great for me. And because of this, I think Joseph, if he he was honest, he'd say about himself, I'm like a crying, starving baby, restless with demands. Noisy with my screams for more. But see, before we get to Psalm 131, there has to be a Psalm 130. Where David says, out of the pits, I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my, ver- mer- to, to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of my sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so... We will fear your name. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen. Wait for the morning more than watchmen. Wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. See, I'm convinced that Joseph in the pit prayed something like this. 
It's here where Joseph learned to cry out to God maybe for the first time. It's here where he learned probably how to wait on the Lord to trust him when it humanly makes no sense. It's probably in this pit where he learns to seek God with all of his heart. Because what we see in the following chapters is a completely different man. Because unless we fall into the pit, unless we fall into the ground and die, we remain a single seed. But if we fall into the ground and die, we will bear much fruit. Do you know today that God has a purpose for your pit? Because this pit for Joseph is Joseph's salvation. And listen, what we're going to come to find, it's not only Joseph's salvation, but the, the pit will be Joseph's brothers, his killers. It's going to be their salvation. And God's going to save the brothers and the whole family through the suffering of Joseph. Now, when we're in the pit, we can't always see this. We can't see how God is going to actually work this for good. But God does. But in fact, oftentimes when we're there, it feels like God is, is silent. God, where are you? See, I'm certain Joseph probably experienced a lot of this too. Where, where, where are you, God? But I'll tell you, in, in fact, this, this whole chapter, you're not going to see God mentioned even once. But please hear me on this. God's silence is not God's absence. Because as we're going to find out, that through Joseph's pit, through Joseph's suffering, God is perfectly working out salvation. In fact, where does this occur? Where? Dothan. Do you know that Dothan is mentioned only two times in the Bible? Do you know the other place? It's when Elisha, hundreds of years later, is in this city, and the Syrian army comes and surrounds the city, and Elisha's servant wakes up that morning, looks out the window and says, oh, they're going to kill us. And Elisha's just sitting back, and he realizes that his servant's blind. He can't see. And what can he see? He can't see. The chariots of God that are also surrounding the hills. And that these chariots of God are going to dramatically rescue them. See, and this is what the Bible wants you to do is it wants you to put these two dothans together because sometimes when we're in the pit, God feels silent and we're just there and we're stuck. And sometimes we're in the pit and God comes with his chariots of fire and he lifts us up and he rescues us. But in both situations, God's at work. He is. And don't play this hyper-spiritual game where we just look, oh, God's working here. We see the chariots of fire, all the dramatic stuff. But he must be silent over here. Uh Uh-uh. No. He is sovereignly 
in control, working out his purposes in both places. He's going to take your suffering and he's going to turn it into salvation. He's going to take our deaths, turn them into resurrections. Now, here's one thing I've noticed with my own self and other people who just find themselves in the pit. We get to this point where we just kind of instinctively think that we're there because God is punishing us. We can't help but ask that maybe I did something wrong or, 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 or worse yet, maybe, maybe God is against me right now. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe I'm being punished for something I did. I don't care who you are. You will think that thought. But see, the story is here to assure us that God is not only for us, but that he's with us when we suffer. Because this story is about more than Joseph. This story points us to the ultimate favored son, God's son. In fact, I love verse 15. I try to highlight it when the stranger asks, what are you seeking? And Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers. I've been sent by my, by my father. I'm seeking my brothers. Jesus came to do the same thing. He was sent by the father and he's seeking his brothers. He's seeking to save us. His killers. From what you and I deserve. I mean, Jesus was sold for pieces of silver. He was, he was betrayed by his brothers. He was stripped naked. He wasn't just thrown into a pit. He was thrown into the ultimate pit, into hell. And, and he cried out. He screamed. Father, why are you doing this to me? And so you know why God is doing all of this? Because God saves through suffering. And Jesus could not be our Savior unless he was first rejected, unless he was first betrayed, unless he was thrown into a pit. Because this is God's way. And Joyce Joseph points us to Jesus. Because this is God's pattern. So that when Jesus actually comes, we're not surprised. And why did it have to be this way? Why can't God just snap his fingers? It's because of this. He's a holy God and someone must pay. Someone must be punished. And see, that's why when we suffer, we innately know this more than if we're not suffering, that maybe God is upset with me. Maybe God is angry with me. Maybe he is doing this because of the way I lived. I mean, no human being, I don't care who you are, can get rid of this. And we can so easily lose the sense that in our pit, in our suffering, that, that, that God is not with us. But then we see the gospel. And the gospel tells us that God is with us. He is for us. Because we see the one who lost his father's coat. So we can be assured today that we have it. And we see the one who lost his father's love. So that we get the father's love. 
he, Jesus, took the punishment so that you and I, we get the Father. We get the kiss. We get his presence. We get his coat. Don't let your pit ruin you or make you bitter. In your pit, find him. God is there. He's in it. He's with us. He's for us. He's changing us. Let's pray. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me. And he heard my cry. And he lifted me up out of the pit. Out of the mud and the mire. So that he could place my feet on a rock. And put a new song in my heart. So that many could see the Lord. God, I just thank you, Lord, for the people in this church who I've had the privilege to watch their life from the pit. Thank you, Lord, for Doug Tages. Thank you, Lord, for just last week meeting with him. How he said to me, his mercies are new every day. Every day I get a new mercy. Thank you for Gary Stowey. He says the same thing. His life screams at God. And we see, Lord, that suffering doesn't have to ruin us, but suffering plus you in your presence, in your coat, make us glorious. Let us respond today, Lord, the way your Holy Spirit would want us to.